Amen. You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, please turn them with me to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we have one for you. Just uh, lift up your hand and we'll get one over to you right now. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking again at the, uh, the bottom half of the chapter, starting at verse 11, reading on down through the end of the chapter, verse 22. Apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the power of your word, and I pray that as the word is preached this morning, that it would impact our hearts and our minds and our affections and our very lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Is that better? Is it working now? All right. Much better. All right, let's jump right into Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. We are actually finishing... Last week's sermon. Um, so, if you were with us last week, you got the first half of it. And if you weren't with us last week, I'm going to try to catch you up a little bit here. Because actually, it didn't record right for last week. So, we don't have it on, uh, online either. So, I'm going to give a little bit of a recap here from last week's sermon. Uh, the first couple of points that we covered. And then we're going to jump right into the third point here. But to recap a little bit here, this section of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 22, breaks down into three basic sections. And we looked at the first couple of those sections um, last week. We'll see if my clicker is working today or not. But the first section, uh, the first section of this text of Scripture, uh, Paul is calling on us to, first of all, remember our former alienation. And that was verses 11 through 12. Remember our former alienation. It says there in verses 11 and 12, Therefore, remember... That at one time you Gentiles. Now, the context here is the Jewish Gentile relationship, and that the church now is is one body, one people of God now in Christ. Yet this this these relationships, these long-standing barriers between Jews and Gentiles, they had to be dealt with in the church. So Paul has to teach about this, and he wants them to remember. He first of all is talking directly to the Gentiles. Remember now that you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands and that little phrase right there Paul gets a little bit of a dig in on the on those of the circumcision party who thought that all believers had to be circumcised in order to be true Christians and basically he's calling their view of circumcision idolatry in that little phrase right there verse 12 remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he wants the Gentiles, he wants the people in the church in Ephesus, made up primarily of Gentiles at this point, 
to remember their former alienation. Remember that they were alienated from the person of God, from the presence of God, from the people of God, and from the promises of God. Of course, the sad thing is, is that the Jews who were insisting upon circumcision and other things were also still alienated from God, as were most of the Jews, all of the Jews who had rejected Christ, because the very first thing here, it says that you were at that time separated from Christ. And so there were many Jews, most Jews at that time, who were also still separated from Christ, and they too were alienated from their God. The second half, or the second point of last week's sermon was that, call, that Paul calls on us to recognize our costly reconciliation. So not only do we remember our alienation, and you, if you'll remember, last week I talked about how in Berlin they've got a cobblestone path where the Berlin Wall used to be, because they want to remember that that wall used to be there. They have to keep in mind that at one time there was this hostility, but now it's come down. And, and so Paul wants them to remember at one time they were alienated from God, but now, but now, verse 13, but now, just as in chapter um, 2, verses 1 through 10, there's this great phrase in, in verse 4 where after we, he talks about us being dead in our trespasses, he says, but now, but now, so there's a great transition point in the passage here, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, again referring to the Gentiles, have been brought near. The Gentiles were referred to those as far off. The Jews were referred to as those who were near by the blood of Christ. So that's sort of the that's sort of the theme verse for this next passage of Scripture here. But you, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the atonement, the work of Christ on the cross, shedding his blood, is what brings us near. It is our reconciliation. It's what does away with the alienation. For, here's what he did, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one. Now Paul's referring to Jews and Gentiles. He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And we talked about that's referring to the wall that was in the temple. That was at the temple that divided the Gentiles from the Jews. And, and he's saying this wall has come down, this wall of hostility. So in this case, he's referring to hostility between people groups, between Jews and Gentiles. And Christ has done away with those hostilities. How has he done it? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And we talked about that, that this wasn't that God's law is no longer valid or applicable to our lives, but that no longer is there a power, the law no longer has the power of death over us because none of us can be the perfect law keepers that the law requires. Christ instead has kept the law on our behalf. Therefore, now the law is powerless over us. So he's abolished the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both. Jew and Gentile needed to be reconciled. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, in this verse, the hostility he's talking about is the hostility between man and God. So not only has the cross, the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, paid for our reconciliation between people groups, man and man, that we can now have peace because we are one in Christ, but also our reconciliation with God, that we are, with, we are united to God through Christ, and he has done away with the hostility. And it is hostility for those who are not united to Christ are at war with God, whether they realize it or not. Verse 17 and he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. We talked about how important preaching is. The far off again refers to the Gentile. The near refers to the Jew. Both the Jew and the Gentile need the preaching of the gospel in order for reconciliation to take place. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Here's why. Because only through Christ, through Christ alone... Do we have access to the Father? Notice the Trinitarian formula here in this verse 18. Through him, Jesus, we both, that's Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus, Holy Spirit, and Father. And so that brings us now to verse 19. So we remember our former alienation. 
We recognize our costly reconciliation. The final point of last week's sermon that's turned into this week's sermon is that we are to realize our new identification. Who we are. So verse 19 starts with these words. So then. So after you've heard all of this about reconciliation, about our former alienation, so then, or consequently, Paul's, in other words, wrapping up his argument here, so then, here's what's happened. Here's the reality. Here's who you are now. So then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. These are tremendous words here to finish this argument. Paul's talking about who we are in Christ. This one new humanity, this one new man that he has spoken of. He gives us three word pictures here to help us understand what it is that we are now. And it's very important for us to understand, to to meditate upon, to think about these word pictures. Because it affects how we, as a church, function. It affects how we treat one another. And so I want to pray real quick that God will help us really dig into this text and to do it justice by applying it to our lives in the way he would want us to. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, now that you would just teach us through your word. Father, there's so much we have to learn about being a church. There's so much we have to learn about being in the body of Christ. There's so much we have to learn about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a brother, what it means to be a child, what it means to be a living stone. God, I pray now that you'd speak through your word. I pray, Lord, that you would increase and that I would decrease as the sermon progresses. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Because Christ, on the cross, has done away with the hostilities between man and man and between man and God, and because his blood has purchased a supernatural unity between man and man and between man and God through Christ— We therefore are to grasp the reality of our new identity, who we are now in Christ. A unified, hostility-free people of God, purchased by God, existing for God. We are a blood-bought people of God, supernaturally united through that blood, with a unity in Christ that transcends all human barriers and differences, in order that we might be God's special possession and he might dwell with us for all eternity. As I've already mentioned, Paul uses three word pictures here to help us grasp who we are. But in reality, these these are more than just metaphors or illustrations, uh, more than just analogies, because these represent who we really are. So when Paul talks about being part of the household of God, he's not just giving us an illustration to help us understand our relationship with God. In reality, we are children of God in Christ. So the first thing we see here, there's three points under this third point here. The first one is that who we are in Christ, we are citizens in God's kingdom. We are citizens in God's kingdom. So then, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. We have a a new citizenship. Now remember, the Jewish-Gentile context here reminds us that the Gentiles felt excluded. Matter of fact, Verse 12 says that they were supposed to remember that at one time they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were separated from God's people. They weren't part of God's nation. But now they are fellow citizens with the Jews, with the believing Jews, of God's kingdom, of God's nation. In the new covenant reality, all national and ethnic barriers have now been obliterated. That dividing wall of hostility is gone, and Gentiles too are now a part of the commonwealth of Israel. There is now a new humanity, a new man, a new community, a new tribe. Hopefully we pushed that theme, tribe, pretty hard at the beginning of this year because that's what we're trying to, trying to get through here is that, that the, the church of God, the people of God, are one people, one tribe. The Jesus tribe, purchased by his blood. This is the true Israel of God, according to the scriptures. It is made up of the people of faith, and our faith is not bound by our ethnicity. 
those boundaries have been destroyed. So the first thing he says, you're no longer strangers. Now, a stranger was someone just passing through. Just passing through. They weren't staying. They were just passing through town. And he says, you're also no longer aliens. Now, an alien, that refers to someone who actually lives in a foreign land. A resident alien. The word refers to a foreign resident in a town where protection and status were secured by probably the payment of some sort of small tax. Elsewhere, Peter refers to Christians as aliens. In uh, second, 1 Peter 2, 11, he said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, that's the same word, aliens, and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So essentially what's happened when we have been brought into the kingdom of God, our citizenship has been changed. We've gone from being citizens of the world, and we've become citizens of heaven. We no longer belong to this kingdom. We're no longer aliens to God's kingdom. We are now in God's kingdom, and we are to be aliens to this world. We are to be people who recognize that our citizenship is in heaven and not in this world. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a new citizenship with all the rights and all the privileges that go along with that citizenship. Now, I've got a couple of documents in my hand here this morning. Um, this document, can any of the kids tell me what this is? What is it? Good. It's a passport. Now, this is my old passport. I'm going to cover up the face here. This is my old passport. Okay, I, didn't, I got a new one now because I need one in a couple of weeks. I didn't dare bring that and use that one as the illustration because I know myself too well and it would have gotten left in my office or lost or something and then I'd be in trouble. So this is my old passport. And this allows me to go from one country to the other. But that's all it allows me to do. It just allows me to go in. It doesn't give me any rights or privileges in that country in regards to I can't go vote. I'm going to Honduras in a couple of weeks. My passport will not allow me to vote. It will not allow me to take advantage of any government benefits they have in Honduras or anything like that. This passport just says, okay, you can legally come into our country and you can go out of our country. Now, this document is a totally different document. Okay? What, kids, what do you think this one is? Any ideas? No? You all have one. It's a birth certificate. Completely different document. Okay? This birth certificate tells me I have rights. I was born here in this country. Okay? If I had a Honduran birth certificate, then when I go to Honduras in a couple weeks, I would have a whole lot more rights than I would have with just this document right here. Two totally different pieces of paper. And what basically the scripture is saying, he's, Paul is saying, hey, you're no longer this. You are now part of the family of God. You are part of the commonwealth of Israel. You now belong to the people of God. And you have all the rights all the privileges that go along with that citizenship. We now belong to this new kingdom of God made up of his people of faith. The Gentiles very well would have understood as they heard Paul talking about this, the importance of citizenship. You may, you may recall in Acts, there's a couple of different places where Paul uh, mentions his Roman citizenship. It was very important to him. It helped him in a couple of sticky situations. He mentioned that, that his citizenship had actually been paid for. A Roman citizenship was very valuable in those days. It was very important to be a Roman citizen. You got a lot more rights and privileges. So as they're hearing this kingdom talk, there was only one empire that people were really aware of during that time. It was the Roman Empire. There was no evidence of at any time that that Roman Empire was going to fail at any moment. I mean, they were at the peak of their power at this time. So the Gentiles would have understood, oh yeah... Being part of the empire, being part of the kingdom is very valuable. They would have understood the rights and the privileges that would have gone along with being a Roman citizen. He says we are no longer strangers and aliens, but our fellow citizens with the saints. Literally the word means the holy members. Our citizen, this reminds me that our citizenship, why does Paul use the word saints here? What is a saint? The word is, is tied to the word holy. It reminds me that our citizenship is unto holiness. Once we have been put into the kingdom of God, once we have been brought into his kingdom and we have a new citizenship, we are on a trajectory towards holiness. Or at least we should be. There should be evidence of holiness in our life. 
if we are a citizen. We are a fellow citizens with the saints. We are on our way towards holiness. Holiness is the mark of our new citizenship. Increased holiness. That should be happening in our lives. That's why we are no longer citizens of this world. But we are citizens of heaven. The things of the world fade away. We're going to sing a... Uh, well, I don't know if that's the song we're singing later or not. But there's... Oh, no. The song that I'm thinking of is Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And the things of the earth will grow what? Strangely dim. That's what happens with heavenly citizenship. Is that the things of this citizenship... The things we so cherished before in this citizenship grow strangely dim. And the things of God become more and more precious to us. That means we're on a trajectory towards holiness. If the things of this world still grab you just as much as they did before your conversion, then you need to ask yourself if it was real. And I don't want to scare people and say, hey, you know, like some revivalists do, coming into churches and trying to scare all the believers into thinking they were never saved in the first place so we can have a great numbers at the altar call. That's not my intention at all, but we are to always be examining ourselves. We are to make our calling and election sure. And the question is, am I on a trajectory towards a desire of the things of God's citizenship of heaven much more than the things of this world? And if not... We have to do some real serious self-examination. We need to look at ourselves and see what document are we carrying around. Are we truly citizens of the kingdom? Are we truly a people set apart? So Paul wants us to see that we are citizens of God's kingdom. And now he changes the metaphor a bit. Not only are we citizens along with the other saints, but also members of the household of God. So we are children in God's family. We are children in God's family. Now notice the increasing intimacy of these declarations. It's one thing to be a member of the king's kingdom. Okay, so let's go back to the Roman analogy here. It'd be one thing to say, hey, you are a member of the Roman kingdom. You're under the, the, the headship of Caesar. Okay, we are the kingdom of God. We are in the headship of Jesus Christ. It's another thing to say, oh, and also you are now a member of Caesar's family. That's a whole another level of intimacy there. You're not just part of the king's kingdom. You're part of the king's family. And so Paul says, not only are we citizens in God's kingdom, we are actually children in God's family. We are brothers with Jesus Christ himself. Members, not servants, not just affiliated with, but members of the household of God. In the Roman world, to be a member of a household meant refuge and protection and rights. It also meant identity and it gave the security that comes with a sense of belonging. We've talked a lot in our church lately, especially as we went through the Jesus tribe, about being part of the family of God. So I don't feel like we have to hang out here a lot. We don't have to rehash a whole lot. But I just want to remind us of this idea that the church... Being God's family is an amazing concept. And it's a recurring theme from the very beginning of Scripture to the very end. The people of God being His family. The church of God, the people of God, is referred to as a family more than anything else in all of Scripture. Did you know that believers are referred to as brothers or sisters or brethren more than anything else by far more than any other description in Scripture. More than believer, more than Christian, more than follower of Jesus, more than follower of the way. More than anything else, the Holy Spirit inspired the words brother, sister, brethren. That very fact that God chose to use the word brother to refer to the church should really, really cause us to stop and think. Why has God chosen those terms, brother and sister, brethren, why, more than anything else? This should tell us something. Just like marriage is a living parable of Christ's relationship with the church, Christ's love for the church, and the church's submission to Christ, marriage is a living parable of that. So to our families, brothers, sisters, it is a living parable of our relationship of the people of God and their relationship to God. 
It should tell us something that brothers is used more than anything else. It should make us think long and hard about how we treat one another. It should really make us think the way, if, 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 if you have a brother, and I'm not saying brothers and sisters can, be, can bug you. How many of you guys have had brothers and sisters that bug the tar out of you? I'm not saying that we don't bug each other. What I'm saying, though, is that we are now part of the same blood. Not your blood or my blood, but the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 13 says that his blood paid for this family. That is a unification. That's a a united front there. That's a blood that's more powerful than any kin that you can think of. And so we are united by the blood of Christ, and we are therefore brothers. And so we should really take care how we treat one another, even when our brothers are really, really bugging us. Because the way we treat a co-worker or a neighbor who's an unbeliever who bugs us should be a whole lot different from the way we treat a Christian, a brother who bugs us. There is a special bond here. There is a special love here. There is a special patience here. There is a special support here. There is a special comfort here. There is a special peace here. There is a special love here that doesn't exist outside of the church. Because we have been bought by the blood of Christ into a brotherhood. Now we could go a lot longer there, but I'm going to skip on to our third point oops i went backwards ah there we go number three so so in light of the fact that christ has paid for the abolition of hostilities and he has paid by his blood for the unity of his people we are to understand that we are citizens in god's kingdom and that we are children in god's family and finally number three we are living stones in god's temple yes i'm already on point three but lest you think, oh my goodness, Steve's already on point three. And we've only been going for 20 minutes. I got a lot under point three. Okay? So, I want to hang out here and really think about this image of us being stones in God's temple. It's a very interesting image here that Paul gives us. This word picture drives home even more, even more, the importance of unity in Christ. Let's read it. Verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I think this text, well this whole text, but this one in particular, helps us deal with a potential danger in the contemporary American church today. And that is to view our faith with an overemphasis on individualism. What do we say? What do you hear all the time? Make a, you need to have a personal relationship with Christ. I mean, that's that's the phrase we hear more than anything else. Hey, do you have a personal relationship with Christ? There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But I think in America, because we're very individualistic-minded people, we just are. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Fix your problems. We're very individualistic in this country. And so we, we tend to focus faith on individual faith. Your personal relationship with Christ. I mean, perhaps you've heard a plea from the pulpit something like this. You know, it's the invitation time. And he says, come on, you need to come forward and you need to do business with God. This is just between you and God. You need to do business with God. You need to, it's not about joining a church. It's not about, it's not about joining a church. It's about a personal relationship with Christ. So come, come. You do business with God. It's not about, we're not going to press you to join our church. You just need to make that personal commitment to Christ. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, so long as it's not done manipulatively. And there is truth that our commitment to Christ is personal. Okay, it cannot be made by our parents. It cannot be made by our friends. Okay? It has to be made by you. Yet, the New Testament also makes it very clear that you're not just entering into a personal relationship with Christ, but you are being grafted into a people. You are being grafted into a family. You are being grafted into a tribe. You are being grafted into a living vine. You are being grafted into the people of God. So it is very much about joining a church. 
Let me just say that. I mean, I just heard it recently, a sermon I was listening to of a pastor I love, and at the end there he said, it's not about joining a church, it's just about your relationship with Christ. And I want to say, no, 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 it is about a church as well, because we can't be Lone Ranger Christians. The, the Bible doesn't, you can't just be a stone sitting out on the road. You've got to be part of a living body of people being built into the temple of God. That's what it's about. It is as much about joining a church as it is about a personal relationship with Christ because the two go hand in hand. You cannot come to Christ and then not not feel a need to be with your brothers. You got to be with your brothers. You got to be with your sisters. You got to be with your family. You got to be at that family reunion that takes place every Lord's Day. Oh, got to be there. That's my family. It encourages me greatly sometimes, all the times. I don't, I don't do Facebook as much as I used to, but when I get on Facebook and some of you guys have been gone on vacation or whatever else, and I see a comment that says, can't wait to get back to my church family, I'm like, yes, that's it. That's what I want to see. Is that when you're gone, you feel something's not, something's not right. I've got to be back with my, with my, with my crew. I've got to be back with my tribe. This analogy about the community of faith, which is made up of individuals, but it's unite, they're united together as one temple for God Almighty. To reduce our faith merely to a personal relationship with Christ is to sell short what Christ died for. Yes, Christ died for people. He died for persons. He died for individuals. But he also died for his bride. He died for the church. I had one of the kids go over and pick up some bricks for me earlier. I got a couple of bricks here. These are the exact same bricks that are used in our building. So if you look in our building on the outside, the bottom half of our building, they have these bricks on them. These exact same bricks. But those bricks that are in this building are a lot different than these bricks here. Because these bricks are nothing. They're sitting over in a pile. They're making a good place for ants. To, to, to all, all they're serving is a temple for ants over there. Okay, they're just sitting over there on the ground. They, they're doing nothing. These mean nothing. But when they are joined together, when they are united together, bonded together, built up together, they form something powerful. They form something strong. And so this is what I want us to see is that our focus on individualism, sometimes I think we just, there's a lot of bricks out there. There's a lot of, a lot of lone rangers out there, just bricks. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I have a faith in Christ. I'm a believer. You need to be united with brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only in the general sense of the church universal, you need to be part of a local body of believers. People united together in Christ for his purposes. This is the image Paul is giving us here. That we are a building built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Okay, there's a foundation too. There's something holding us together. There's a lot of bricks over there by the White House. They're together. They're there together. They're in a stack. They're not a building. There's nothing holding them together. There's no foundation. There's no mortar. There's nothing. They're just a pile. And so there has to be a foundation as well. Now, some people try to translate this passage right here where it says built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. They try to translate it as something like this, a foundation that's been laid by the apostles and the prophets. I think that that's an unnecessary attempt to, to, to fix this passage because what they're wanting to do is they're wanting to reconcile it with 1 Corinthians 3 where we read that Jesus Christ is the foundation. And so in an unnecessary attempt to try to reconcile those two passages, I think people try to look at this text and say, well, this means that, that the apostles laid the foundation. But if you read the Greek the way it was written, it, it's pretty clear that it's referring to the apostles and the prophets themselves being the foundation. Jesus, of course, is the foundation in 1 Corinthians 3. We don't have time to read that text as well this morning. But if you go and you do read that text, in the first part of that analogy where Paul's referring to the, the temple, the people, being, uh, the, the people of God being a temple... He refers to the people of God as building upon the foundation. He, he wants us to take care how we build upon the foundation. Either you're doing it with, with good deeds that are going to stand the test of time, 
stand the test of judgment or you're doing them with deeds that aren't going to stand the test of judgment. You can go read the passage for yourself, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 11, or 10 and following. But that analogy, he's referring to people putting things on the foundation. This analogy here, although they're similar, he's referring to us ourselves being the actual building materials that God is using and putting upon the foundation. So let's talk about this foundation of the apostles and the prophets a bit. Apostles here, I believe it's not referring to the apostles in the general sense that it is used a few times in Scripture, referring to someone who's a missionary or a church planter. But this is referring to the apostles of Jesus Christ, the small and special group that Jesus chose, those who witnessed, his resurre- witnessed the resurrected Christ, specially commissioned by Christ, authorized, gifted by him with signs and wonders and an infallible word to start his church. So this would be the twelve Minus Judas, but replaced by Matthias, Paul, James, and perhaps Barnabas. Those are the apostles. Now, prophets here, prophets here can either mean the Old Testament prophets, and some people want to look at this passage and say, well, apostles and prophets, that's New Testament, Old Testament. That's what this text is referring to. I don't believe so. I believe he's referring here to the New Testament prophets. Okay, so prophets here that he's referring to, I think the reason I think he's referring to New Testament prophets because, first of all, he's, the word prophets follows the word apostles, apostles and prophets, not vice versa. Had he said prophets and apostles, I think we could have interpreted it as Old Testament, New Testament. But I think he, he's referring to those people who were also used by God in the early formation of the church to speak forth the word of God to the church. Ephesians 3, 4 says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Later on in Ephesians, verse 11 of chapter 4, But he gave apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So there's these apostles and prophets that were in office, apparently, in the early church. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And he has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So I believe that Paul is referring here to a role in the church of men who taught authoritatively the word of God as the Spirit gave utterance, who were under the authority of the apostles. The apostolic teaching is the authority. These prophets spoke forth the truth, and these were foundational in the building up of the church. So basically, what I believe Paul is referring to here is the authoritative teaching that established the church. In other words, our New Testament. What we have here is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This is the authoritative teaching, the authoritative word given by Christ through his apostles and prophets. What constitutes, so let me just say it in a very practical way here. In a very practical way, I believe this phrase means for us today that the church is built upon the scriptures. Because even if we think about the Old Testament, the Old Testament is interpreted in light of the New Testament. And so I believe that this text here, this passage is saying that today the church is built upon the Scriptures. The church stands or falls based upon its loyal dependence to this Word. And this Word speaks about a man, a God-man, Jesus Christ. And even more, Jesus is the Word. So in a very real sense, this passage in no way is at odds with 1 Corinthians 3 especially when we understand what a cornerstone is. We read this in the rest of this text here. It says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The cornerstone was essentially part of the foundation. The building couldn't exist without the cornerstone. Paul gets this from Isaiah 28, 16. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. It says this, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who, is laid as, who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So you can see here how the cornerstone is inseparable from the foundation, just as Jesus himself is inseparable from his word. The Messiah was predicted to be a precious cornerstone, tested and sure, laid by God himself. Now archaeologists have discovered some cornerstones in the ancient world, One archaeological group was in Nineveh, and they found cornerstones of buildings that were so important to the structure of the building that actually when the cornerstone was laid, a royal name would be inscribed upon the stone. 
So a royal name would be inscribed upon the cornerstone when it was laid. What a beautiful picture. If that's what the Roman people were thinking about when they heard the word cornerstone. Yes, the royal name of Jesus is our cornerstone. One, and these cornerstones were huge. One ancient cornerstone that was discovered from the Temple Mount is over 38 feet long. So these are big, massive stones. This cornerstone was the standard by which the rest of the building was built. It determined everything. Every wall had to be in line with it. Every wall had to be angled properly with it. The cornerstone was the strength of the building. On it, everything else rested. John MacArthur put it this way. The cornerstone was the support, the orienter, and the unifier of the entire building. Christ Jesus is himself the cornerstone on which the whole building rests. He supports us. We're dependent upon him. We find our identity only when we are aligned with and connected to him. If our thoughts and actions are not aligned with Christ, then we are weakened, and so is the church. Think about that. The whole structure depends on the cornerstone. If one wall, or let's reduce it to one stone in one wall, is not properly aligned with that cornerstone, is not angled right, then it doesn't just affect the weakness of that stone. It affects the, the whole structure. So our when we're not aligned with Christ, and I'm talking about every day in our daily walk, if we're not aligned with Christ, then we are not just putting ourselves at risk. We are weakening our body, our whole church. We are brothers here. And the way a brother acts affects the other brothers. A lack of unity often comes from one or more, not just one person, but more people, not being aligned with Christ properly. Something is askew. Peter helps us understand this image of Christ as the cornerstone more. 1 Peter 2, 4. says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. That's why I got living stones. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and now he quotes that Isaiah passage, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then he goes on. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now he's quoting from Psalm 118.22. And... A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now he's quoting from Isaiah 8, 14. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They stumble because they disobey the what? The word as they were destined to do. The, the, the cornerstone is inseparable from the foundation. You cannot be properly aligned to the cornerstone if you're ignoring the foundation. Jesus says... This is how you'll, I'll know you love me. You'll love me if you keep my what? Commands. You keep these commandments. If you're aligned with me, then you're aligned with my word. The foundation and the cornerstone are inseparable. I think we can all identify with this. Your weakest times as a Christian are the times you are not in this word. Regularly. I, unless you're different than me, if I go for days without this word because I've got some sort of excuse, it's vacation, or I was up too late, or whatever else, I find myself stripping and stumbling and failing and weak. This is the foundation, and Christ is the cornerstone, and we are to be aligned with him, and we are to be in his word in order to be aligned with him. So do we see the unity in Christ that we are to have? In Christ, in Christ, it's mentioned over and over and over again. 33 times in the book of Ephesians. Christ is the mortar holding the living stones together. Not only do we find our unity, do we find our, our, our peace in him and our lack of hostility in him, our unity is found in him. Paul goes on to conclude this passage with two parallel statements, verse 21 and 22, about the importance of our unity. The importance of our union with one another and our union with Christ. So I'm going to read these two verses. I want you to see how they're just... It's like Paul saying the same thing twice. 
These are parallel. Verse 21. In Christ, or in whom, the whole structure being joined together grows into a temple in the Lord. And here's the second one. Parallels that. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So I'm going to look at these phrases, what he's saying here. In him, in whom, and in him. Again, our union with Christ, the cornerstone, is what makes us a part of the building. The church is only made up of true believers who have put their hope in the cornerstone of truth, Jesus Christ. And so that's why, I'll say it again, why do we take regenerate membership seriously? In other words, why do I give you a questionnaire when you join the church and ask questions like, can you, in your own words, explain the gospel? Are there multiple ways to heaven? Asking some probing questions because I want to know Are you truly a believer? Because we're not going to just say, oh great, I'm glad you want to join the church. Shake your hand, come come just be a part of who we are. Because that's how false stones get in the building. And the building gets weak. And the building gets in trouble. Regenerate membership is important. Only those who are in him are the ones who are being joined together. That's where the lack of unity comes in the church a lot of times as well. From a non-regenerate membership. So first we are to be united to him, but also it says being joined together. And it also, the second verse, it says we're being built together. We are in him growing together, being joined together. We will desire and experience union with our brothers, our fellow citizens, our fellow living stones. You cannot be a divisive person in the church, period. The scriptures doesn't allow it. You cannot be a divisive person in the church. Christ will have none of it. Our unity is evidence of our union with him. Vice versa, our lack of unity might be evidence either one, of a lack of solid fellowship and alignment with the cornerstone, or two, that there's no true union with the cornerstone in the first place. So let me say a word again about unity. I said a little bit last week, but I just want to say a word again about unity. Unity, according to verse 13, is a blood-bought thing. Therefore, it is to be taken seriously. But not unity just for unity's sake. The whole passage is about our unity in Christ. The question for unity is whether or not we are in Christ. Do we truly believe in this Jesus that the Scriptures proclaim? Do we embrace the biblical gospel? So there is a type of unity out there where people say, hey, let's just all get along. Let's just all get along. There's a lot more good we can do in the world if we would all just get along. And in order to make that happen, we base our unity on the lowest common denominator. Well, we're all, we're all churches, right? So let's just, let's just get along. That's not the type of unity I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a type of unity that's based on the highest common denominator, which is Jesus Christ. Are we united in Christ? Do we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ? If so, then we're brothers. Now, that may take some discerning, especially when we're dealing with issues with other churches. Does this church truly embrace the gospel? But if they do, if they proclaim Jesus Christ, then they are a brother. If they embrace the gospel of Christ, they are a brother. By 1 John 4, 1 says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit. So we are to do this testing. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. So there are false prophets out there. Here's the test. But you know the Spirit of God. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. I would say that when John here is talking about confessing Jesus, he's talking about confessing the Jesus of the Bible. It means confessing the gospel message of Jesus Christ. This isn't the Mormon Jesus. This isn't the Jehovah Witness Jesus. This is the Jesus of the Gospels. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So let us take care then to test the spirits. And and also, we've got to remember, this is written to a local church. So here we are to test the spirits in the church. And if there's a spirit of the Antichrist here, we deal with it. But otherwise, 
We grow in unity. And I would say that is also the way we practice things with our sister churches. We seek to grow in unity. Unity is the theme of these verses here. Unity in Christ. Joined together. This phrase, joined together, means carefully joined. Every component or piece was carefully put together. It was used to refer to furniture or even uh, buildings like Paul's using it here. It, was, it, it, it carried the idea of skill, craftsmanship, and precision. I have a picture of a wall. That is a wall. Let's see if anybody knows where that wall is from. That is a wall from an Incan village in Peru. An ancient Incan village in Peru. Did anybody have it? No? Okay. People are amazed at how the Incans did their architecture. Because these stones have been standing for hundreds and hundreds of years and have not fallen at all. Even after wars and conquests. And you can take a piece of paper and you can't get it in between these stones. They've been joined together. They've been cut so precisely. They fit together so perfectly. They do construction better than a lot of contractors in America today. And it's amazing when you go and you see this type of structure. I've, I had the privilege of seeing some Incan walls like this when I lived in Ecuador. That's the type of unity we have. We're all sorts of different shapes and sizes and functions selected by, cut by, fitted by God into his church. There are some very uniquely cut stones that God puts in his church, aren't there? There are some stones that have been cut so unique they may rub you the wrong way. But they've been cut by God, they've been placed by God in this church. And where they're weak, you're strong. And where you're, you're weak, they're strong. And it's a beautiful picture of God putting together his church. God is the architect. God is the builder. With precision and skill, he's chosen us and he's cut us. Stones that differ from one another and that are employed for different functions. And he has skillfully placed us into position in relation to Christ. Attached us to him, to the cornerstone. The stones are then linked to one another with the bond of love that we have in Christ. And God gets all the glory. The stonework proclaims the glory of the mason, not the stones. When people look at these walls, they say, those Incans were amazing. They don't say, wow, what awesome stones. They praise the masons. They praise those who built the wall. And so when we look at unity in the church, what it should do is lift up praise to God. Look at that church. They got all kinds of different people in there. There's people that do this and that do that. There's people that believe this and believe that or whatever, but they're all united in Christ. They've all embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness, to God be the glory. Look at the unity of that church. But that's not how the church, how the world looks at the church. Look at that church over there bickering and fighting. Did you hear that church split the other day? Did you hear about that? We like to bicker about the stones instead of praising the God who's placed the stones in the structure. Do people praise God when they look at us? Do people praise God when they look at this structure? I'm not talking about this building. I could care less about this building. This building was a gift to us. I care much more about this building. And so when people look at us, do they see God glorifying unity and joy and fellowship and brotherhood and love and the bond of peace? They see that. I'm not sure they do. I'll tell you one thing right now. I don't think people see joy at Harbin's. I don't. We are to be growing and being built. That means this is an active thing. These verbs grows into or um, are being built into. These are active verbs. It's not a done thing. It's happening. It's, it's an ongoing thing. Matter of fact, I'm going to show you another picture. This is the Basilica de San Juan in Quito, Ecuador. It's just a big old church building. I won't call it a church. I'll call it a church building in Quito, Ecuador. Now, the Basilica de San Juan was commissioned and construction began in 1883. All right, any guesses here on when construction got done? 
Hmm. Now, just kid, give me, come on, give me a date here. All right, nobody has any idea. They think it's a trick question. It is because they're still not done. The Basilica de San Juan in Quito, Ecuador is still under construction today. Now, if you know anything about uh, uh, this kind of style of, of um, oh, what's that? It's kind of the, the, the Gothic style of cathedrals that were built, especially the ones that were built in Europe that are similar to this. Some of those took three, four hundred years to build. So it's no surprise that they're still working on it. But I just show you this picture. You look at all the stonework. You look at all the beautiful stonework here in this building. And how all these different stones, there's little stones that are make up the gargoyles at the top. There's different things. It's a beautiful structure that's still being built. So the only reason I show you this picture is to get into our mind this idea that the church of Christ is an ongoing thing. We are supposed to be growing in unity. You don't come and you sit here and you sign the covenant and say, okay, that's it. You are to be actively working with Christ, Holy Spirit working in you towards unity. So what have I done this week to build unity and fellowship in the body of Christ? That's the question we should be asking ourselves. Am I allowing Christ to use me to grow this church in unity and in fellowship? Church growth, according to this passage, this talks about growing. Church growth is what happens when people are aligned with Christ through the gospel, and then they are united with others into a family of faith. Christ is the key. It says it happens in him. Christ is the key to church growth. I want to write, there's lots of church growth books out there, right? I've got some of them in my office. I want to write a new church growth book. I want to make it 300 pages, put a nice fancy cover on it. All the pages are blank except the first one. It just says, in Christ. Just sell it. The key to church growth. You open it up, it says, in Christ. The other 299 pages are blank. Probably make a fortune. Put it on Amazon. Because that's what it boils down to. Are we properly aligned with Christ? And how are we properly aligned with Christ? Are we in this book? If we're looking for some sort of great strategy for church growth, but we're not aligned with Christ through his word, and that takes hard work, and it's not just the pastors that are supposed to be aligned. Absolutely, they must be, but the whole body. Because we'll get to Ephesians 4 here in a little bit when it talks about the, how the, the, the pastors, the teachers, what our job is to do is to equip you for the ministry. And so are you aligned with the Word of God? That's where church growth comes from. Now, not all growth, not all church growth is numeric. There's different types of church growth. Remember that we are being, on a, we are being put on a trajectory of holiness. A lot of church growth, the bulk of church growth should be happening inside of your hearts as you're being made into the image of Christ. If we add numbers but we don't add holiness, forget it. Holiness is the church growth Christ most desires over numbers. Now, if God adds numbers, great. I want numbers. I get depressed, I'll be honest with you, when numbers aren't added. It's my flesh in me wanting numbers. But I think over this past six months, God's helped me to say, you know what, there's a lot of holiness work we need done in this church right here. There's a lot of holiness work that needs to be done in this church. I got a lot of things I need to burn off. I'm going to take a lot of families through a lot of fire this summer. You think it's hot? Wait till you get to the summer. I'm going to take this church through a flame of refinement, and it's going to be beautiful growth. That's church growth. Holiness. We are being built. The church is being built, and it won't be completed until we hear that loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When Christ comes again, at that moment, we hear that loud trumpet and that voice. Well, then the building will be done. The building will be completed. And that one will be destroyed. Built into a holy temple in the Lord. A holy temple. Again, holiness. Our holiness is part of God's plan. We are growing into a holy temple. Not only does God, yes, he adds numbers to his church. But more importantly, as I've just said, he is in the process of sanctifying us. 
making us into the image of Christ, purifying us, making us holy. Church growth is as much about sanctification, internal growth, as it is about numeric growth. And he's growing us into a temple here. Now surely Paul is referring to the, to the Lord's temple in Jerusalem because he's already referred to that dividing wall of hostility. So he's keeping that image in our mind here as he refers to us now being the temple. The reason the dividing wall is gone is because the whole temple structure is no longer important. Matter of fact, in AD 70, it's going to be completely wiped out because we are now the temple of God. The word here used for temple is not the general Greek word used for temple that refers to the whole temple complex but the word used for the inner sanctuary. So Paul's not saying here we're the temple, this whole big complex. He's talking about the holy of holies, that we are God's special meeting place between man and God, and we're now being referred to that meeting place. So you look at the parallel here. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God's Spirit resides in His children, and it's through His Spirit that we can say God lives in us. Now, this is huge for the Gentiles, and this is huge for the Jews, okay? Not only were they admitted into the commonwealth, and not only were they now part of the family, but Paul is saying that the Spirit of the living God can live in a Gentile? You bet you. For over 2,000 years, the point of identity for the people of God had been first the tabernacle, and now, it had, it, when it, the writing of this, it had been the temple, but now, after the work of Christ on the cross, it is the church. And the church is the people of God where the Spirit of God resides. The God of Israel, to whom all Gentiles and Jews belong in Christ, to all believing Gentiles and Jews belong in Christ, had once taken up residence in the wilderness and later had taken up residence in the Jerusalem temple by His name and by His Shekinah glory. By, but now His Son has come and tabernacled with His people, according to John 1.14. And the Spirit has made His dwelling place in His people. And what a privilege we have received. Look at the increasing intimacy again. You're not only part of the kingdom of the king. You're not only part of the family of the king. But the king is in you and living in you through His Spirit. You are united to the king in a very intimate and unique way. Wherever God's people are, there God's presence is. No longer is the dwelling place of God a geographic point. Where some, where some were near and others were far off, but his people are united in Christ and spread out across the globe. What a beautiful passage this is. Let me get it off of that Gothic-looking church here. So we are citizens in God's kingdom. We are children in God's family. We are living stones in God's temple. This text, back at verse 11, it starts with alienation. And it ends with identification in Christ. And in the middle of it, it's reconciliation. We are a blood-bought people of God, supernaturally united through that blood with a unity in Christ that transcends all human barriers and differences in order that we might be God's special possession and He might dwell with us for all eternity. Are you a part of that building? Are you united to the cornerstone? Are you this morning in line with the cornerstone? Let me repeat what Peter said and let that be our closing call for response. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Believe in Jesus Christ. You are part of that temple so the honor is for you who believe who put their faith in who put their hope in but for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense so this morning either you are united to that precious cornerstone or you are stumbling over it and that stumbling will lead to judgment so let's pray this morning. Let's close our eyes. Let's meditate upon our cornerstone as we pray, Jesus Christ, and ask him to convict us of sin as we respond here with tithe, prayer, however you feel led to respond. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this morning.
I pray, Father, that your word was preached, Lord. If there be error in my words that I spoke, it's because I am a filthy, rotten sinner. And I make a lot of mistakes. And so, God, I pray, Lord, you forgive me of those. And I pray, Lord, that your word would go forth with power and that you would... Lord, just uh, let your spirit have freedom, Lord, in our hearts to apply it however it might need to be applied in our lives this week. Lord, there's so many things, Lord, that I'm out of alignment with. There are things in my life that need to be more aligned to the cornerstone. There are things in my parenting. There are things in my marriage. There are things in my finances. There's things in my leadership. There's things in this church. There's things, oh, I could just make a laundry list and it could become overwhelming. But you're calling me to cast all those cares upon you. You're calling all of us just to come and lay those burdens down and to to beg you to do a work in us, to repent of these sins and to lay them down at your feet and ask you to do a change in us. So convict us. Give us a spirit of repentance. Help our unbelief. Give us a believing heart that you can and want to do a work in our hearts. Have your way with us now, Lord Jesus, however it might be. Align our hearts to you, our precious, glorious, royal cornerstone. We love you, Jesus. We love you so much. Oh, Father, forgive us of our sin. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand, if you would, as we sing this last song about Jesus paying it all. Verse 13, by his blood, he paid it. He paid for unity. He paid for this building. Mr. Ewing paid for this building. Jesus paid for this building. And so let's pray to him. Let's sing to him. Let's respond however he leads. Jesus, please. 